0: The title of my talk, and I, almost, I wish I had like a funny slide to show you, I don't, is Can't Stop the Signal, Enduring Hope in Divided Times. Can't stop the signal. Anyone out there who knows uh, the movie Serenity? or Is there anyone? All right. Or the uh, critically acclaimed but commercially despised show Firefly that was canceled before the end of its first season. This is, that's my sort of shout-out to that show. But the reason it is, this word signal, it's a word that's come back into our vocabulary pretty strongly in the last uh, year or so. And um, when I was trying to figure out what I wanted to say about the Reformation, because, you know, um, 500 years, it's, it's a long time. It's a big anniversary. You know, I, I've never celebrated 500 years of anything. Right? I mean, it's older in America. It's, it, 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 you, it doesn't come around very long. Someone said, oh, I think we'll have another one of these, you know, in, in uh, what, 26, 57, 25, 57? 57, 25, I went to college. <laughs> Twenty-five, seventeen. 17? Um, that's probably still wrong. Um, but... Uh, so what occurred to me in terms of what speaks to me today and how does this historical thing that is frequently misunderstood or mischaracterized and, sometimes, and, and often celebrated and people get excited about it, what is it, why get together? Why come interrupt your Saturday? You're busy, I mean, this is a busy time of year. I can't believe you're here. Thank you. Um, Martin Luther thanks you. I know, because I, you know, we just talked to him. Um, What does a signal do, though? A signal, and in the show, in the movie Serenity, a signal is something that beams out into the universe, and it just keeps going, and you cannot stop it, and so it's just a matter of sort of locating the signal. The signal is sort of a one-way message and information that's being conveyed, and it just keeps going. It repeats and repeats and it repeats. And those of you who know about Mockingbird, that's sort of our mantra is that we're repeating a song we've heard like a mockingbird. But, I mean, as I've gotten sort of older, I sort of think, it's more like a fugue than a mockingbird. Mockingbirds are irritating. Maybe they're not very creative. They're basically just repeating it. A fugue, you know, like Bach, you have a theme, and there's sort of variations on a theme. And anyway, that just paints me as a bigger nerd than I actually am. But what are the signals at the heart of the Reformation? Because there's two that I want to speak about today. And the first signal is the one that we are beaming out. Almost all the time that the Reformation located, the Bible actually. Jesus, St. Paul, Augustine, all these people, they located at the very center of how human beings operate and interact with people. But it, was, it, took, the, it took this strange group of you know, Germans to sort of grab it back and to say, hey, this is actually true about all of us, and thats we're signaling stuff all the time. And what I mean is that we're, words are coming out of our mouths and uh, you know, we're, actions are happening but we're sending a different kind of message. And What are we sending? What, what, what are the kind of signals that emanate from us? Well, we signal our success, don't we? I signal my success to you when I tell you where I went to college. Uh, you know, the office was so great when they said, I, you know, I went to Cornell, you ever heard of it? That's, that's not just conveying information. What you're actually saying is I'm righteous. I'm good. I'm worth listening to. I'm worth taking seriously. In fact, maybe I'm worth loving. We signal our popularity. Anytime we tell people how busy we are, we're often signaling our significance. We're that much in demand. You know, we haven't had a second to catch our breath this fall. Translation, signal coming out, I'm occupied because I'm important. This is the signal. You often think that social media exists solely for this purpose, to send the signals out into the world about what we want other people to think about us. And you don't have to be on social media, though, of course, to, uh, to send signals. I was at a conference about the Reformation last week, and I ran into some people I hadn't seen, and they were talking to me about this um, book that they really liked, and it, it, I heard myself at this conference about the Reformation and the danger of self justification, the sort of disease of self justification. And I said, Well, you know, I was asked to write the foreword to that book, but I had to go on sabbatical. <laughs> I said, I, I, and I, the next, that was, I was about to get up there and talk about this stuff. And I just said, "Oh my word, you know, what Nick? I, I am a drowning man. <laughs> <laughs> I am drowning. I mean, Christians do this. You know, the world you signal your success, your busyness, your you know, your wealth. Perhaps um, we Christians, religious people, signal their holiness, their piety. The Babylon Bee." Um, famously parodied this recently when they say six day visit to rural African village completely changes woman's Facebook profile picture <laughs> but that's not just it you know you're, you're, maybe you're sharing a prayer request and um, you hear other people share theirs but you know you really you've got a good one and it shows how just how much you are in touch with the Lord with God how, or how deep your pain is you are going to signal something with your prayer request uh, then, then there's, there's people in other circles they, they signal how much they, they get it they get the gospel they'll drop some curse words in there with you you know, they'll like, signal I'm one of you, you know, I get it I'm one of those cool Christians or I'm not like that kind of Christian or that kind of person we signal stuff We try to out-orthodox each other or uh, out-heterodox each other. Whatever it is we're doing, we're contradicting Matthew 6 when Jesus says, When you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. Those likes underneath their post, that's the full reward. I hope it was worth it. That brief sort of head nod, oh, that's so interesting that you were asked to do that, you know, you pretentious ass, you know. <laughs> that, that was my entire reward, and it wasn't much. Of course, the primary use of the word signal, the reason it brings, springs to my mind today is, is, is was the way it was coined by the BBC reporter James Bartholomew uh, with the phrase virtue signaling. It's a helpful term that he used originally about, only about three years ago to describe online activism. And you all know what we're talking about. It's the idea that expressing an opinion establishes that we really care. And to sh- but we use hashtags and we, we make public, You know, where do you stand on something? And we're constantly putting out positions of, and, and staking g- ground online <laughs> where there is no ground. Um, to show that we have the right opinions because having an acceptable opinion makes you morally superior to those other people. One of the great ways we signal our virtue, because we don't actually, we don't usually do it overtly, it's all the signal that's going on underneath the surface. We, We indicate how good we are by what we hate, by what we are against, and the louder we talk about it, the more, the stronger the signal gets. Of course, this requires little effort and no sacrifice. We, um, if you're a person like me and you're, uh, you know, demographically, you're not exactly um, terribly uh, victimized, <laughs> you, the way you do this is you identify really strongly <laughs> with those who have been because you're trying to borrow their righteousness for yourself. Uh, because you know that their somehow, their identity, their history, what Daryl has described to us now, if I can just identify with this loudly enough, well then maybe that righteousness will apply to me. I'll be as justified. Because that's the only way to deal with this tremendous guilt I have by nature of being born in the 21st century. Where we're so aware of all of our missteps. I mean, we signal by the questions we ask in a public setting. We signal our virtue. This is why we never have Q&A at Christ Church events in Charlottesville. We have <laughs> You're supposed to laugh. <laughs> because it becomes what's, you know, people aren't asking you questions. They're trying to say, I have the right question. Or, I understood you the most. Or, everyone else should bow down before my... Um, superior uh, grasp of the content. You see, signaling is a euphemism for self-justification, whatever form it takes, which the Reformation placed right back at the core of what it means to be a sinner, is to be someone who is trying to justify your worth and trying to say, I am worth, I am lovable, I am important, listen to me, hear me, see me as T.S. Eliot says, it's just part of the, the endless struggle that we're all absorbed in to think well of ourselves. The human sinner, as diagnosed by the Bible, as diagnosed certainly by Luther and the other reformers, is caught up in an exhausting and painful pursuit of self-justification. I say exhausting, and I say fruitless and painful because when we're sending our signals, what are they actually What are we actually signaling? We're signaling the extent to which we feel condemned or guilty, aren't we not? The extent to which we know that we need to prove our worth. We need your validation. I need it that badly because I don't believe it. It comes from our engagement with the law. And this isn't just the law of God, which Paul says is inscribed on the heart. It's the law of you need to be other than how you are. This whatever standard in your life by which you're measuring your worth, whatever's telling you that you need to signal your worth so badly, so overtly, so distractingly, well, that is your engagement with the law, and it's everywhere. It's you know sometimes when you talk a lot about law and grace and the life of the Christian and the life of the world, people say, well, you just you're making it sound like any standard of goodness any ideal is bad. Some sort of, it's like a bunch of teenagers just saying, don't tell me what to do. But that's not it. There are plenty of things we should do. There are plenty, the law of God is good, it's holy, we can affirm it in every case. But what is, it's a problem for the sinner who takes any chance uh, the sinner can get to turn uh, something good into a new avenue to feel better about themselves. Therefore, evac- thereby evacuating any actual moral uh, uh, currency. You see, law is everywhere. As the signaling in our society demonstrates, we have not removed the law of God, the Thou shalt, the Thou shalt nots, by refusing its existence or by giving it other names. If anything, we are currently living in a climate of so much oppressive uh, should, uh, so much oppressive ought, that people are killing themselves. You know, Martin Luther said this in his uh, second disputation to the antinomians. He said, law ought not to be taken in a technical or grammatical sense, but as it sounds forth in your heart, urging and battling your conscience so that you do not know where to turn For the law is that experience or power, that handwriting impressed on our hearts, castigating and beating it, so that if the gospel would not come, you would soon have to despair. Yet this one law occupies and fills the whole earth. Indeed, it is so big that the world can barely contain it. That is why it is impossible to remove the law totally. For even if you were to remove these letters, L-A-W, which can be very easily deleted, The handwriting etched into our hearts, which condemns and drives us, nonetheless remains." Now that's some sort of highfalutin, theological, slightly arcane way of saying that to be a human is to live under the law. And it's not not, uh, neutral. This is what drives people to despair and to exhaustion. For me, the Reformation remains so important Not out of fealty to something that happened a long time ago, or some ethnic or religious roots, but it's because people are so absorbed in the process of self-justification that it is we cannot even see past our own nose, and you cannot love your neighbor. You certainly cannot love God. And to be absorbed in, to be to alive in a world which has taken God out of the equation largely is, to be, is to, to be in a place where the vacuum has simply been filled with an unending, unremitting number of commandments that produce despair, exhaustion, and heartache. Other Christian traditions, I'm not sure, take this seriously enough. One of my favorite writers said it's impossible to exaggerate how many of the deeds of individual men and women can be traced back to the powerful and inextinguishable need of human beings to feel morally justified, to feel themselves to be right with the world. This is simply a long-winded way of saying that you and I are less concerned with being good than in others knowing that we are good, because then we might believe it ourselves. So more than to be good, what we want is for others to know just how good we are. Or that's, what, that's the slide, that's the immediate slide. And the person that shows us this better than anyone, of course, is Larry David. <laughs> the clip we're about to watch, Larry has donated a wing to the NRDC, which is, I think, some environmental council that his wife is a part of. It's a clip from Curb Your Enthusiasm, and he has probably done it partly out of concern for the environment, partly out of concern for his wife, and partly in order to get, as we find out, a little bit of credit. But let's just see where that leads. Hey.
1: (gasps) Larry David. Huh? That's great.
0: Never had a wing before.
1: I know. That's pretty good. Yeah. Pretty good. It's your night to shine. Yeah. Yeah. What is that? We can donate by anonymous. Yeah. Anonymous? Yeah. I'm not crazy about that. Now it looks like... It just looks like I did mine for the credit. As opposed to, you know, Mr. Wonderful Anonymous. I know who it is. It's Ted. Ted is anonymous. What are you, kidding? No. Isn't that great? He donated the whole wing. Didn't want anybody to know. Well, he told you. So he apparently wanted somebody to know. He told me, Okay. Who else did he tell? How do you know he just told you? point is he didn't need all the fanfare and didn't need a fanfare what fanfare i don't like the fanfare you're saying i like fanfare you can tell a few people he just doesn't need the whole world to know that he donated all this money you know what i didn't need the world to know either nobody told me that i could be anonymous and tell people i would have taken that option okay (laughs) you can't have it halfway you're either anonymous or you're not. What is it? Look, at people are pointing out and go, there's Larry David. Oh, right. yeah, there's Larry David, the guy who has to have his name up on the wall, as opposed to Mr. Anonymous, but who's really Ted. I'm proud of you. Anonymous. It's fake philanthropy, and it's full anonymity. What do you think about that?
0: Oh. I want to go talk to, uh, Senator Boxer. I'll be
1: right back. Isn't he great? Dad! Yeah, oh, you know you each dolphin. other, oh, yeah. right? Oh my God! You look fabulous. You are such a hero. Oh, you are. You know are when Barbara. you founded the Ocean's Foundation, you changed everything because his kids couldn't swim in the bay. Oh, in the oh. ocean. Oh, oh. Yeah. oh the poor little kids—they couldn't swim in the bay. <laughs> the best. Oh, what about the 400-foot pool they could swim in? Was that that wasn't no. available to them at the time? <laughs> well, you know, could I just say, that aside, look at this. Oh. Anonymous. Took dump you dump. really. I know, I know, I didn't say, Larry, did you know this anonymous is Ted? Yeah, you just can't I run. did. With the yeah. point on you didn't need to do this. Well, you know, you did. I, that's true. I he didn't. He but didn't. That's, why yeah. I kept my, that's why I kept my name off, because I think it's the it's the exhibit, it's the issue that needs to stand for, And you're so me. passionate about the issue. Thank you. you know, too many people yeah. don't do things out of the goodness of the, they want the credit. You are number one in my book, Ted. Senator, please don't forget oh, that. Oh, I've got to run. Bye, Larry. Bye, Ted. Uh, so See you. Later. Bye, yeah, Bye. Break this one. Wow! Wow! I didn't expect that.
0: <laughs> so, in his commentary on Curb Your enthusiasm, Martin Luther wrote: "The fact is, the more a person seeks credit for himself by his own efforts, the deeper he goes into debt." But it is impossible to gain peace of conscience by the methods and means of the world. Experience proves this. Various holy orders have been launched for the purpose of securing peace of conscience through religious exercises, but they proved failures because such devices only increase doubt and despair. We find no rest for our weary bones unless we cling to the word of grace." You know, we have a lot of holy orders of our own trying to secure peace of conscience, trying to secure that enoughness to silence the voice of condemnation that we intuit from the world and from our own experience of our own heart. I was uh, struck by the way that this works out, that instead of giving us peace, our doubt and despair increases by, in that article in the New York Times a couple weeks ago that asked, why are more teenagers than ever suffering from severe anxiety? Maybe you've paid attention to this. Over the last decade, anxiety has overtaken depression as the most common reasons college students seek counseling. The, uh, I think last year in its survey, the American College Health Association found a significant increase of undergraduates reporting overwhelming anxiety in the previous year from 50% in 2011 to 62% in 2016. Meanwhile, in the last 10 years, the number of suicide attempts in that precise demographic has doubled. Well, what's going on? They're trying to secure peace of conscience by works of the law, and it's not working. For many of these young people, one expert says, the biggest single stressor is that they quote never get to the point where they can say, I've done enough, and now I can stop. There's always one more activity, one more AP class, one more thing to do in order to get into a top college. Kids have a sense that they're not measuring up. The pressure is relentless. It's getting worse. So what's going on there? You're spending your adolescence trying to beam this signal out that isn't there, and you are driving yourself essentially to the to the madhouse because you're trying to secure peace of conscience by works of the law, and it doesn't work. Self-justification, this beam that we're transmitting, it uh, it seems to never uh, meet its. Uh, its end, any kind of satisfaction. Now it may sound that I've got disdain for the cycle of signaling that we all go through, that we went, just went through at lunch, and we're going to go through the second we walk out this door. But I don't. I have compassion. Because what these students are doing is the same thing you and I are doing when we are trying to uh, feel better about ourselves. We are actually, we're actually—we're not actually just trying to feel better of ourselves, we're actually trying to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We're just doing it in a way that was never intended to work. The law cannot, if, if righteousness could be attained through the law, Paul writes, then Christ died for nothing. But that's where we are, and that's one of the reasons why the message of the Reformation, which is as Nick and and Jake and Sarah said so well, it's just the message of Christianity. That's why it's just so precious today. Because look at what do you do when you talk about virtue signaling, for example? What have I done? When I do it, it allows me to write off any public utterance of concern as false, as mere performance, anything that I don't really want to hear about. So you're just virtue signaling. In other words, calling out virtue signaling is a way of virtue signaling. It's what I'm doing right now. It's a way of signaling superiority, of parsing the righteous from the unrighteous. And that's what's going on with all this signaling. We're simply dividing ourselves over and over again. Because when you're caught up in justifying yourself, you're going to resent the person who looks like they're a little higher up on the ladder than you. And you're going to patronize the one who's a little bit further down. You're not going to be able to love. Furthermore, if you're way up top, remember, there's, as Niebuhr said, there's no cruelty greater than the cruelty of the righteous. But this is perhaps why we've made life into a contest of righteousness. We saw this pretty dramatically in Charlottesville this past fall. You, everyone knows what happened on August 12th, and Daryl was just talking about it. He gave us a refresher. And what happened was interesting, not in terms of what actually went down, but we were right there, you know, our church adjoins the park in question. And what we heard ourselves saying, everyone, that the second afterwards, how are we trying to make sense of it? Well, the thing you heard out of all my neighbors' ears and I heard myself saying immediately was, you know, all of these people came from out of town. The neo-Nazis and the Antifa, they all came in from out of town. What's the signal I'm sending? They're not like the good people of Charlottesville. I am parsing the innocent from the guilty, keeping myself on the innocent, the righteous side of the line. I'm indulging in an us-versus-them categorization which got us into the hot water in the first place. Fleming Rutledge in her book, The Crucifixion, says there's nothing more characteristic of humanity than the universal tendency of one portion of humanity to justify itself as deserving... And some other portion is undeserving. Nothing is more foundational in the Christian faith than the recognition that we can never be justified in that way. To speak of deserving is to divide up the world in a fashion that is utterly alien to the gospel. Christ came to die expressly for sinners, for the undeserving, for the ungodly. So that's the beaming message. I am loved... And the the stronger it gets, the easier it is to put yourself on the good side of the equation. But the Reformation also recovered the other signal, the signal from God to you and me, which is in spite of and in fact of because of uh, this inability to ever live up to whatever thing is making you feel like you have to signal all the time. God Has a signal of his own. And it's not a no, it's a yes. Not only are you forgiven your endless parsing of the righteous and the unrighteous, but you are gifted with a righteousness that's not your own, but is his and therefore yours. This is Luther's great insight. Because he knew that if we were to keep looking within ourselves for any shred of that goodness, we would take even the shreds of wonderful things that we are a part of and we'd turn them into uh, score totals to be compared with our neighbor. So in his reading of Scripture, he discovered that when it comes to salvation, we render nothing to God. We only receive and permit someone else to work in us, namely God. Therefore, it is appropriate to call the righteousness of faith passive. We do not have it of ourselves. We receive it from heaven. We do not perform it. We accept it by faith. Then, do we do nothing and work nothing in order to obtain this righteousness? I reply, nothing at all. You hear the, the, the transistor language in there, right? Any stereophiles know that when you 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 need a good receiver in order to get the signal. Human beings here are the are actually the receivers. They are passive. The righteousness, the signal that we're after, must actually come from it must be come from outside of us. That's the only way that we can be assured that it's good news. It's the pastoral heart of this entire thing we're celebrating. The great pastoral aim, in fact, of Luther's doctrine of justification is to free you and I from the kind of performance anxiety that arises whenever our salvation, or identity, or well-being, or self-esteem depends in any way on us, our hearts, our will, or our doings. For anything we do is something about which we can ask, am I doing it well enough? No, I gave it anonymously. It's not enough to give a $3 million gift to the NRDC. You have to do it anonymously. And what happened? I mean, they, they hate each other by the end of that, right? You see it working. For Luther, the answer is always to the question, Am I doing it well enough? The answer is always not well enough. Join the club. Let's listen to what God has to say about that. Because this This signal is external to us. That's why it is a gospel of assurance. So it's not too much of an exaggeration to say that Luther believed that Christians, or human beings, are much more compromised than the church had ever realized. That things under the surface, as Nick talked about last night, are usually much worse than they appear. But that the signal coming from God is that much purer and precious. Now, this accounts, by the way, for the repetition, I think, of this message, because uh, uh, the, the Reformation took very seriously the short-term memory loss of humanity. We're all like Dory in, you know, <laughs> finding Dory. That's why that movie Works as such a great allegory. It's like, what was that again? What was that again? Uh, what was that word of forgiveness? Because right now, I just got caught up in some enormous amount of signaling that is keeping me from actually seeing you as another human being. I've seen you as an obstacle to my own uh, self-approval or someone who's in competition with it. You see this incredible signal from God, I think, really beautifully in uh, the parable that Jesus tells in Matthew 22. It's, a, it's the more R-rated version of the one he does in Luke. I'm going to read it to you. It's one of the wedding banquet parables. Once more, Jesus spoke to the people in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding banquet, but they would not come. Again, he sent other slaves, saying, Tell those who have been invited, Look, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. To signal. Um, but they made light of it and went away, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his slaves, mistreated them, and killed them. The king was enraged. He sent his troops, destroyed those murderers, and burned their city. Then he said to his slaves, the wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Go therefore into the main streets and invite everyone you find to the wedding banquet. Those slaves went out into the streets and gathered all whom they found, both the good And bad, so the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man there who was not wearing a wedding robe. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding robe? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot and throw him into the outer darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen." Amen, the end, have a great life. Just kidding. Um, What we have here is the ultimate RSVP nightmare. It's the story of a king who has sent out an enormous amount of invitations to this wedding banquet and not one of the people invited end up showing up the day of the big party. And they all have excuses. In Luke, he lists these excuses. One says he's got a real estate deal that he's got to to figure out about. Another one says that um, he just got some new oxen I don't know what that would equate to in modern parlance. Maybe he just got some new toys that he needs to, you know, a new car. Um, maybe some new agricultural equipment. Um, and the last one, though, is very realistic. He blames it on his wife. He says, I just got married. I can't, I can't accept. They're all doing what we call bailing. And they're doing it, when they do it, they're sending the signal. They're saying, actually, I've got something better to do. I, um, I know you're trying to include me. But I'd rather walk my own way. I mean, maybe you know someone with whom you're constantly making plans that you know will never actually come to pass. At the last minute, you get a text or an email. Something's come up. Sometimes I think cell phones and texts were invented for precisely that reason. I work with college students at UVA. And what you have to do now is you have to make a plan, and then two days beforehand, you confirm it, and then um, the morning of you, conf- you confirm it again and the, about 20 minutes beforehand you say that you're on your way and then you know it's happening. Recently I forgot to do the last one and the guy said I thought we were we weren't having lunch. I said we confirmed three times. He said yeah but not 20 minutes, not like right beforehand and I said give me that phone and I just <laughs> threw it on the ground. But maybe you're the other you're the person, maybe you're like me, you're flaking on people. You know when you do it. With very little notice. I certainly do it all the time. And when something like this happens in life, it usually pushes on our insecurities. We usually think, what signal are they sending? I'm not important enough? I knew it. They have something better to do? I knew it. I saw what their life looks on Instagram, and it looks really great. And it can't include person like me. But Jesus is not, or the king in the parable is not like us. He's not so insecure that he cancels his party. In fact, he continues right on ahead with his good time, which he plans on having regardless of who joins him in it. The signal goes forth uninterrupted, it keeps transmitting. We are told that he sends his servants out into the street to gather everyone they find, both the good and the bad. You know, sometimes, over the years, we start to think that the whole point of religion, the whole point of life, is to work our way onto the invitation list. You know, if I just got invited to that Christmas party, or if I was just good enough or important enough to make the list for that end-of-the-year shindig, or get my name on that wall, well, then God would love me. Then so-and-so would love me. But you see, in this story, no one has to get their act together in order to be worthy of the party. Perhaps it's because God's party does not have bouncers. It has ushers. The king is happy to welcome these people, not because of who they are, but because of who he is. This invitation, which continues to go forth, despite the shilly-shallying and the the wishy-washy and the lack of confirmation. It's a signal that endures and extends even to those who are caught up in dividing the world into the good and the bad. But that's not where the parable ends, right? He's getting these people off the streets. So let's think about this. They presumably didn't have time to rent a tux. They might not have had time to, you know, go shopping for a dress. They probably couldn't afford one, even if they did. Which means that the king himself provides them with wedding clothes. The signal turns out not just to be information. It turns out to to take the form of being clothed with with this regal attire that you only have by warrants of showing up and having a pulse. It's a fancy word for the imputation of righteousness. But what we find is clothed in these wedding clothes which are provided by the king himself. What God sees when he looks at you and me is not determined by our pedigree or our performance, by our biology or our biography, by the various signals we're sending or think we need to send. Our acceptance is determined Solely by his love and grace. By the one who loved me and gave himself for me. Except for this one guy who refuses. He would prefer to stake his acceptability on his own signals. Thank you very much. I want to be dressed how I am. And he refuses to even talk to the king about it, you'll notice. The king has to discover it. It doesn't end well for him. And if I'm not going to try to figure out some sort of eternal situation here, but I do know that the refusal of grace defines the true nature of hell. It is the only thing left for those who will not accept their acceptance. And yet, we know that Jesus does not stop there. Robert Capon wrote that Jesus came to raise the dead. He did not come to reward the rewardable, improve the improvable, or correct the correctable. He came simply to be the resurrection and the life of those who will take their stand on a death he can use instead of a life he cannot. What did Jesus in his death do? It says he descended, what we say every week in the creeds, he descended into hell. Not just the hell of the guilty, because that's what heaven is too. We're all guilty. It's the hell of the stubborn, and the self-righteous, and those who are convinced that they need to figure out who's in and who's out. And he goes in there, and he rescues. Now, this sort of non-stop, unremitting uh, signal is something that is the reason that I actually asked Daryl Davis to come speak to us today. Because I saw it at work in that documentary, in a way that I don't think I can fully articulate. I I don't think he can fully articulate. But something has taken this man captive. And it's this thing that you heard when he says, if you really want to heal something, give your adversary a platform. Get the soda pop ready. I mean, those are small things, but they're big things. There's one example early in the documentary that I thought we'd close with, because to me, it is the heart of why this 500th anniversary is worth, worth celebrating. And it, it comes when, um, it, it, the clip is of him talking on a Geraldo Rivera show in the sort of, I think, the early 90s. Let's, let's watch it.
1: You don't know who uh, Geraldo is? Okay. I was on this show with some neo-Nazis and some Klan. A.K. kids, children, too young to hate. Uh, Carol, I want to ask you, have they had an active children's movement? The uh, children's movement started with uh, a fellow named Tony LaRickey in the state of Maryland who formed the uh, Klan Youth Corps. Okay, Mike, why don't you lead out the various Klan families? And your name and age? Um, my name's Aaron and I'm 12. So uh, what do you think about your parents' uh, belonging to these organizations? I think it's fine. Why, sweetie? Well, I mean, they're allowed to like their race. They're allowed to be proud of who they are, too. Are you going to be uh, a member of the group also? Yes. So now both daughters are in the Klan. And their father, he got sentenced to 10 years in a federal prison. So I thought, you know what? I'm going to call Tina, the mother. I tracked down her number. I called her. And when I said, Tina, this is Daryl Davis, She hit the roof. She cursed me up one side and down the other, wanted to know how did I get her phone number, what did I want, blah, blah, blah. I said, Tina, shut up and listen to me for a second. I flew with them to Chicago and drove them out to uh, to Marion, Illinois, to the federal penitentiary, where their father was in prison so they could visit him. And nobody in the Klan had ever done that for them before. And so they had a turnaround. Well, my little girl came a long way. You know, no thanks to her father and I, we really did our best to destroy our kids. And uh, I do believe God does work through people, other human beings, and He most certainly uses Daryl Davis as an instrument because that man has touched a lot of lives. Me and my husband Harley would like to extend our best wishes to the city of Rockville, Maryland, as you celebrate the life and legacy of Dr. Martin Luther King. Neither me nor my family are members or are affiliated with the Ku Klux Klan anymore.
0: So there we get a little glimpse of this king who keeps inviting and keeps sending that signal. I mean, it even takes the form of a phone call. This Tina, she answers the phone, and that's all she does. In fact, that's not all she does. She proceeds to curse him up and down. But Daryl, through whatever God-given grace or patience or perhaps deafness he's been blessed with, um, he just absorbs it. He absorbs the hate, he absorbs the resistance, he absorbs the justification, how dare you call me? And he responds by telling her first to shut up. (laughs) I'm gonna come out there and drive you and your daughters to go see your husband who's in jail. And no one else has done that for you. He does not relate to them on the basis of their signal. He relates to them on the basis of His. He's not Jesus, but I'm starting to picture Him that way. Just kidding. He's really not Jesus. But this is what it means to be caught up with the beautiful assurance we have that despite all the signals the world is sending and all those we find ourselves sending, even when we know we shouldn't, God's voice to us never wavers. Not when we're giving the excuse, not when we show up in the wedding clothes, not even when we decide to take them off. The signal keeps beaming. You can't stop it. It is the answer to the question, which is evoked by the suffering and sin of real human living. And the question is is there any comfort? The answer that comes back is yes. And his name is Jesus. Amen.